0: Hey
1: guys, before this episode starts, I want to talk about some pretty cool news. Okie Investigations now has its own website. It's truecrime.blog, and it is a running blog for crime stories and for this show. So if you're a true crime buff and you want to see some cool things that we gathered while researching each show, including a like timeline of events that we put together Uh, newspaper clippings court documents and much much more come check us out at truecrime.blog hello everyone and welcome to okie investigations my name is trevor shelby in this episode we're going to continue the story of a young girl who went missing after a middle school football game in midway city oklahoma If you missed part one, go back to last Sunday's episode and start there. Uh, This case remains one of the most shocking and violent crimes in Oklahoma's history that still has people asking questions today. In this episode, we'll discuss what happened, why, and what happened since. But first, if you're a first-time listener, to experience this podcast to its finest, hit that subscribe button so when we have new episodes... You will be the first to know. Then head on over to our Facebook page. Here we can discuss the case together and perhaps come up with our own theories on the many cases that will be featured in the show. You can find us at Facebook.com/forward/slash/okie Investigations. I hope everyone's had a great week. Uh, this week we added a show to our lineup. Wednesdays will feature a dark side of Oklahoma history. It's a shorter story lineup. So, uh, you know, a little bit shorter. It will feature some of the great forgotten Oklahoma true crime stories that were big news in their time. Uh, These Oklahoma history stories have been a lot of fun to look into. It's also pretty darn interesting uh, when you read something or hear and see names of Oklahomans in the past that have like hospitals or lakes or highways named after them. A little nerdy, but pretty cool. Another thing I want to mention is the poster for Fawn and Rosalyn Abel is still going strong. If you haven't already, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Investigations. There you can see the poster. Uh, make sure you share it. Because it's been, it's been shared hundreds of times. It's been seen by thousands of people across the United States. Really across the world now. If you haven't done so already, uh, just go to our Facebook post it, share it. Hopefully after seeing that there are others out there who still care, they will come forward with the information that we're seeking. If you want to contribute to this show, please share the show to social media and give it a rating on the podcast network you are listening to it on. That helps us way more than, you know, the more ratings we get, the more that the podcasting networks can learn where to place us when people search for things like true crime and stuff like that so every little bit helps now enough of all that let's get on with the show now if you remember 12 year old jennifer janelle gilbert better known as jj disappeared on september 27, 1984 after a middle school football game while waiting on her stepdad to come pick her up her body was found the next day 10 miles away in Hara, Oklahoma. She was left with only a bra on, and she was in her underwear that was pulled down to her ankles. The same day JJ's body was found, a man was pulled over a half mile away from the Midwest City Junior High School. The man driving the car was Dewey Moore, who lived in Midwest City, and at the time, he appeared to be driving to his home, which was a trailer park, near the school now this is 36 years later but it's a very sketchy place i believe there are still people living there but it doesn't look safe at all none of the trailers there look to be in very good condition most of them are just campers that appear to be abandoned some of them appear to be abandoned some of them might be lived in i don't know the police pulled over more because he was driving the car that was reported stolen the night before He was arrested and booked into the Midwest City Jail. It was quickly apparent with witness descriptions of the car that was used in the abduction and Moore's past that he was going to be the first prime suspect in this case. When he was arraigned, the judge decided to hold Moore on a $300,000 bail, so there was little chance he was going to be able to get out. This would give the investigators time to look into Moore as a suspect without the worry of him either, you know, running away or going to find another victim. Now, one of the things that the Hera police took note of was the tire tracks that looked very fresh near where the killer dumped JJ's body. This was noted. It was noted that these tracks could be very well the ones made by the murderer. Now the midwest city police had a car that they could match up to those tracks and they could see if they were a perfect match or not. This was high on the list of things to do to see if they could take a step closer in eliminating more as a suspect or not. Another thing the police decided to do was enlist the help of the Oklahoma City Police Department in collecting and examining fibers that may be found in the car itself. This was top of the line evidence of its time. This was just a couple years prior to DNA testing being used as evidence in a criminal case, so it was not, that was not like a consideration at this time. What was considered was a $10,000 polarizing microscope. The Daily Oklahoman had reported by Charles Gaylor that quoted the police chemist Janice Davis as saying about the microscope, The polarizing scope allows us to identify what types of fibers we are dealing with. For example, nylon fibers refract differently than rayon fibers. The method shows more conclusively that certain fibers came from the same source. This is especially true if the fiber is from an uncommon source such as a rug manufactured only for a short period of time. What's really cool about this microscope is that it was obtained through a joint effort of local agencies. This is with the thought in mind that they could all benefit from it. The Oklahoma County Sheriff's Department made the purchase and it was handled by a lab within the Oklahoma City Police Department. The police departments in Oklahoma County would now have access to this to better their cases and help put the right people behind bars. So one of the things that police was searching for was JJ's uniform. It wasn't near her body, and so there were probably different thoughts about this evidence and why it was so important. The main being that finding it would probably mean that they could find evidence on the uniform that would link someone to J.J.'s death. Or they might find it in the possession of the person who committed the murder. Most likely taken as like a trophy. Either way, it could be, you know, a smoking gun in this case. Almost a week after the discovery of J.J.'s body, the police have yet to find the Pep School uniform, but they do have an announcement to make. An article in the Daily Oklahoman written by Andy Morgan was titled, Murder Clues Found in Bag. This article details two men finding a bag on top of a Breeden's grocery store on 29th Street. Now, it doesn't state this in the article, but I can only assume that these two men who found the bag were employees of the store. Because otherwise, I don't see why anyone would care about a sack sitting somewhere. The Sunday after the murder, a man noticed a sack on top of Breeden's grocery store while he was leaving to go home. It was just a normal sack, sitting up there near some AC units. A few days later, the same man notices the sack again. Now, it's his thought that most things, you know, especially just the sack, would be blown off the roof, you know, by this time. It's been days. There's been winds. I mean, it's going to fly off at some point. But it's still there. It doesn't even look like it's moved. So he and a friend decide that they're going to see what's in the sack, the friend goes on top of the roof, turns the sack over, and when he sees what spills out, he immediately tells his friend to call the cops. What was in the sack, you ask? A knife, a belt, and some tape. Now, by this, now by the time this was found, it was big news in Midwest City that a local man was arrested for murder. He lived just down the road from this store, and everyone knew the police was searching for evidence, so naturally they alerted the police. This evidence could now be linked to any other evidence that might be found in the car or even in Moore's home. This was a big win for police if it could be linked to the killer. Now, 47-year-old Dewey Moore was currently waiting in jail for the case to move forward in the auto theft. But on the outside, the public were being introduced to 20-year-old Dewey Moore and was learning of his awful actions of his past. In less than a week, the newspapers that were covering the case had a whole lot of information on Moore, and they were printing all of it. In 1957, while attending college in Oklahoma City, Moore was charged with attacking a waitress and then robbing her. Moore was found guilty and sentenced to five years in prison, but those were five years were suspended, so he did no prison time. In 1974, Moore was convicted with the attempted rape of a five-year-old girl in Midwest City. He was given a three-year sentence, and again, it was a suspended sentence. Now, one of those years was revoked because he began doing time in Texas for aggravated kidnapping and indecency with a child. In 1980, Moore was let out of prison and just months later, he again was in jail for attacking and cutting a woman with a knife, choking a nine-year-old boy and a 11-year-old girl, stealing a car and robbery. Moore pled guilty and was sentenced three years in prison for each charge and the sentence would run concurrently so the time that he would do all together would be three years because he was serving them all at the same time soon after he was let out of prison again he would then quickly remarry and just days after the wedding he attacked his wife during intercourse and threatened her two children he spent a year year and a half in jail and during the trial he was given time served He was released in May of 1984, just months before JJ's murder. This man, for a lack of a better term, was a real ticking time bomb. You can see that not only were these types of crimes escalating, but the frequency in which they were happening as well. 1957, 1974, 1980, 1984. He went from attacking women, attempted rape, to kidnapping, to attacking his own wife and threatening the lives of her children to possibly murder. It's amazing what someone can get away with in the criminal justice system. Twelve days after the discovery of J.J.'s body, the police charged Dewey Moore with the murder of J.J. District Attorney Robert H. Macy stated that Moore used his hands to smother J.J. to death and that it was such a cruel way to die. Macy also stated that this was a case that he was going to try personally and he was seeking the death penalty. This would be a first in the state of Oklahoma because as of yet, they had not convicted anyone based mainly on fiber and hair evidence. The trial would not be ready to start for almost a year due to the nature of the testing needed to be done by both the prosecution and the defense. Although there was not a lot of evidence, the labs compared fibers found on J.J.'s body and those that were in the car that Moore was driving and in his trailer. When jury selection came up, they had a difficult task of finding just about anyone who hasn't read about this case or had seen reports on it in local media. Many of the questions asked by Prosecutor Robert H. Macy was that if the jurors had what it took to look a man in the face and return a death verdict. The defense asked prospective jurors that if convicted, would they have the courage to sentence a man for life, even though his murder involved the death of a 12-year-old girl. The trial was quickened to the point the prosecution brought forward Janice Davis and Joyce Gilcrest, who were police chemists for the Oklahoma City Police Department. On the stand, Davis was able to outline 49 places throughout Moore's car and home that had hair and fibers that matched those found on J.J.'s body. She also stated that the evidence collected in the bag found on top of the grocery store had countless hairs stuck to the tape that was inside. The prosecution rested the case based on this evidence knowing that it was so very strong. The jury came back with a guilty verdict. When the jury read the verdict, Moore slumped in his chair in defeat. But this was not over. The sentencing phase was about to begin, and the prosecution brought forward the many women that Moore had wronged throughout his life. The defense brought forward Moore's mother, who did little besides defend how they raised Moore as a child. Moore was sentenced to death. When leaving the courtroom more answered questions to reporters he called the trial the best frame bob macy ever put up in his life and stated that the police in midwest city had planted the evidence used against him to convict him as crazy as that sounds almost 14 years later it was those allegations among other real evidence that would reopen this tragic murder case in 1999, an affidavit from a mortician who prepared the body of J.J. for burial stated that the police came and collected hair samples from J.J.'s body. One of his co-workers, who is now dead, was suspicious and decided to follow the officers when they left. He told his co-worker that the officers went straight to Moore's home and then they entered through a window. Shortly after that, the police found evidence in the form of hair, in Moore's home, but this was not really taken seriously since one of the men was now dead and the other one waited so long to even say anything about it. What opened the case even further was the fact that Joyce Gilchrist, who was a supervisor at the time of JJ's death, also worked and testified in this case. In 2001, it became evident that throughout her 21-year career as a chemist with the Oklahoma City Police Department, she had doctored and destroyed evidence in order to gain favorable outcomes for the prosecution. This case was one of the many that was on the top of the list to be looked at since it was a death penalty case. Moore was in the process of appealing his sentence when he died in prison in 2004. The actions of Gilchrist will probably be covered in more detail on another show. But to put it simply, her actions throughout her career put in real doubt in every case that she worked on, including this one. Moore was a real bad guy. We've covered that pretty well. But it's sad that there will always be this cloud of doubt that will hang over his case. Especially if he was innocent and someone got away with Murder. I highly doubt that this will be the only time that we have to bring up Joyce Gilchrist and her testifying in a case that's going to cause a little bit of doubt. Personally, I think the police got the right guy. I don't know if there was any tampering done with the evidence, but just through looking at his past, it seems like, yeah, this is probably the right guy. Now, join us next Wednesday as we jump into the Oki time machine. I got a real good one lined up, and I think you guys will enjoy. Make sure you subscribe to the show so that when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. I'll see you guys next week. See ya.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.